back to Politics on Trial. This is our newest episode, which will encompass harmful legislation. Now, before we get started, we need to mention something, or more like three things. This topic is quite dynamic. So as certain bills are passed, blocked, or vetoed, the outcome is going to change. So it's not set in stone. Number two, this topic is going to include other countries around the world, but we're mainly going to be talking about the U.S. and how the legislation harms the people in the U.S. But even then, we will touch upon other countries just a bit. Third, make sure that after you're done listening to this episode, please go ahead and look up these legislation on your own and please educate yourself. So like Arisha said, you know, this topic is very intricate and many of the outcomes are quite dynamic. Um, What this means is that though we will do our best to educate people um, here on what uh, harmful legislation there is present right now, we can't see into the future. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to pass. So make sure to track the journey of these uh, these pieces of legislation on your own and learn about them. Alrighty, let's jump right in with perhaps the most obvious one to all Americans, and that is not necessarily a specific bill, but a collection of state bills from many different states that are being passed to restrict voters. In Georgia, it goes by the name of HB 531, and that is the most quote-unquote popular one. In this one specifically, there are clauses to restrict ballot drop boxes, they require more IDs for absentee voting, and limit weekend early voting days. It passed the Georgia House on Monday, March 1st, amid protests that the proposals will make it harder for voters to participate in democracy. The state House voted along party lines, 97 to 72, on the sweeping election bill supported by Republicans who want to impose new voting requirements after losing the presidential and the U.S. Senate races in Georgia. Now, as of today, when we are editing this episode, the bill has indeed passed the Georgia Senate, and it was signed into law last night by Governor Kemp. Now, you may have heard about an elected Georgia House member who was protesting. Well, not even protesting. She was merely knocking on the door of the governor while he signed the bill, and she was arrested without any reason given by the police or, you know, any citation that she broke was, you know, cited by them either. So it's, there's a reason that, you know, Stacey Abrams and people like her are calling this bill Jim Crow 2.0. This woman, who is an African-American woman, by the way, was knocking on the door of the governor, and she was arrested. For what? What was the reason? There was no reason given. She was arrested for knocking on his door. That's it. She wasn't doing anything. She wasn't harming anyone. She had every right to be there. The right to assemble is, you know, a prevalent right in our democracy. So a lot of people are kind of questioning at this point, okay, well, we see that the Georgia legislature is trying to prevent, you know, mainly Democratic voting at this point with this bill. But now they're also arresting people who speak out against it? Now, the bill, as Arisha uh, mentioned earlier, does many things, many different things. But um, let's just examine quickly three parts of the bill that are the most detrimental. So the first part is that it makes it illegal to hand out water or snacks or food 
of any type to people who are standing in line. Okay, well, you know what? People could make the case, oh, this will hurt Republican votes too. Sure. Except that case is not valid. In mainly Republican counties, you know, there's a smaller number of people. And, of course, it's the same number of, you know, voting locations. So that means the lines are not as long, which means you don't have to stand in them for as long, which means there's no need for water or snacks because you're in and out, you know, in half an hour. Whereas in Fulton County, for example, in Georgia, which has over a million, a ha- uh, a one and a half million people, you know, it's it's hard because... It's cities are so clogged up, especially at their voting precincts, that the time that it takes to vote, most people don't want to spend, you know, three hours standing in line with no food or sustenance and no place to sit as well just to vote because most people do not think their vote matters that much. The second part is that it takes away weekend voting, namely Sunday voting. You may not know this, but here in Georgia, and I'm sure in other play, in other big cities around the country, um, predominantly African American churches in you know urban centers. So for us, Atlanta, um, and again different places um, for different states. But in in these churches, they hosted a Souls to the Poles, you know, event or many Souls to the Poles events on which are in which. On Sundays, they used to, you know, sponsor drives over to the polls and the voters would vote early or, you know, vote absentee or, you know, there would be some sort of encouragement to this type of voting. However, if you don't have that or if you don't have the capability to have those events, that's it's just making it one step harder, you know, for someone to go to go vote. Um, many people in the city that attend these churches, Sunday is really their only free time. You know, they're working, their wage is below, this. their standard of living is below the poverty line. They don't have any time to go vote. And this, this church-sponsored event gave them time. And because of this bill, now that's in danger. The third and final part is... A bit more on the philosophical side, you know, it isn't exactly something that's in the bill per se, but something that the bill does, and that's discouraging voting. Now, as a democracy, you know, America should be predicated on the ability of the people to express their opinions. That is something that is irrefutably true. However, with bills like this, what you're what you're saying is we lost, so instead of appealing, what the Republicans are saying is we lost, so instead of appealing to voters, we're just going to make it harder for the ones who voted for the other people to vote. Basically, they're just saying, you know what, we don't want to put in the work of appealing to these voters and trying to reach out to the, you know, the the ideas that they have. We want to just limit them um you know, limit their votes and try to minimize their words. And I don't even know, I shouldn't even have to say this, but that's wrong. That's, that's all kinds of wrong. Other states are passing legislation similar to this as well. Mainly the swing states that turned blue in the election this year. That's including Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and even Nevada. 
To counter this, the federal government legislative bodies made up of barely empowered Democrat House of Representatives and a barely empowered Democrat Senate. Right now, as of March 4th, a bill entitled the For the People Act, which would impose some restrictions against these measures and and or limit gerrymandering in most states. However, though, at this point, as passed the House of Representatives, it has not yet passed the Senate. And the Republican caucus in the Senate is likely to filibuster the bill until the end of the Senate session. Mm, filibuster. We've heard that quite a bit this past month or two. What exactly is it, Vivek? Well, this is a very, you know, complex word, and the, the process that goes with the word is also a very complex process. So first of all, the word comes from the filibustier, which is French, and the Spanish filibustero, um, meaning to savage something or to corrupt something. Now, the word literally means, in this case, to corrupt or sabotage the proceedings of the upper house of the Congress, which is, of course, the Senate. Basically, a filibuster involves a congressperson that is opposing something that is passing through the Senate, refusing to cede the floor and debating or talking until the end of the session. So if, say, someone from the X party was in the minority, um, or say the X party was in the minority, and the Y party was in the majority, and say the Y party was attempting to pass something through the Senate that the X party, who is again in the minority, um, didn't approve of. Now, just one senator from the X party could take the floor and speak until the end of the session so that the bill didn't get voted on. And the only way to end their speaking is to have 60 out of 100 votes, which a party rarely has, especially in polarized times like these. Because the filibuster stays in place, it prevents certain parties from doing certain things. But because some people have gamed the system, they have found a way to forgo the filibuster. Here's an example. The Republican Party, which at the time was led by Majority Leader McConnell, allowed the Senate to end a filibuster on a Supreme Court nominee. This was for judicial appointment. By only 51 votes instead of the required 60. The Republicans held a 53 to 47 majority at the time, and even with two GOP senators voting against the affirmation of Barrett, that still allowed Republicans to continue as they had now a slightly smaller majority of 51 to 49. So you might be wondering, how does this relate to things? How does this relate to what's happening now? Well, as Arisha said, it allows the minority party, in this case the Republicans, but just barely, by the way, to stall the For the People Act. It lets them continue their state-by-state -state gerrymandering and voter suppression. Now, another thing, in my opinion, that's worth noting is that filibuster, you know, axing the filibuster is not the only way to go here. Um, what we could go for is a more traditional approach, more conservative approach of reforming the filibuster. So the filibuster has become a little corrupted because currently what you can do is any quorum, you know, of senators, so 40 or more, uh, 41, excuse me, can vote to open debate and it can only be closed with a vote of 60 Again, no one, you know, bear, bear, it never happens really anymore that anyone has that type of majority in the Senate. So the debate can go on and on and on. Previously, what a filibuster used to be, even before that, was that one person could take the floor 
And they would have to stand there debating until the end of session, but they would have to do it alone and not stop talking. That was the real filibuster. And, you know, that's what most people think of when you say filibuster. So by ref- by that one senator, they can't have any help. No one can help them. No one can take over. No one can give them food, give them hints, give them anything. So if we... Joe Manchin has said, and so has um, Kirsten Sinema and um, Mitch McConnell, they've said they'd be open to reforming the filibuster back to those rules because those rules were, you know, if we're going to keep something as arcane as the filibuster, those rules seem fair. So we don't have, there's, there's still options. There's options that people can take. But anyway, I was just, you know, wanting to make sure that we all knew that Again, just like, you know, many things in politics, it is not just one thing or the other. But anyway, back to you, Arisha. And these are not the only types of federal or state legislations that are harmful. Let's go ahead and take a look at a few. The first one actually seems kind of ridiculous, um, but it's actually quite a problem. Jaywalking. Now, jaywalking is one of the most notable symptoms of streets and cities. Um, that were created for people who drive rather than people who walk or bike or take public transit. Jaywalking laws have the worthy goal of deterring people from crossing streets in ways that could lead to collisions. Now, it is a worthy goal, that's true, but in practice, these laws also lead to the criminalization of normal human responses to poorly designed streets. While it's a common response to blame pedestrians for breaking the rules, Often the dangerous ways that they cross streets are the result of local government decisions as to where to place homes or businesses or streets or crosswalks. And although jaywalking laws are well-intended, research shows that they don't actually make streets safer. At minimum, jaywalking laws can place large fines on people who walk, fines that are often much higher than those for parking tickets. So basically, jaywalking discourages walking that's so insane is it not at their most extreme jaywalking laws can lead to unfair consequences for people who don't drive cars in atlanta georgia raquel nelson was prosecuted for a vehicular homicide after her son aj was killed by a drunk driver as a pair across the street outside of a crosswalk raquel and her family were trying to walk from a bus stop to their apartment and the nearest crosswalk was one-third of a mile away. Raquel is not alone in being penalized for living without a car. Many cities, especially suburban developments, were built to support car transportation. But as more carless residents, such as low-income families, move to neighborhoods designed for cars, they find that their needs are not taken into account. Second are laws that make food-sharing illegal. Now, cities have many good reasons for enforcing robust food safety standards. However, a subset of food safety laws restrict people from sharing food with community members who are homeless. These laws range from requiring a permit to share food in public spaces to making food safety regulations so stringent and so strict that food sharing groups no longer have the capacity or the, you know, the resources to comply. For example, certain food safety laws may require food handler permits or restrict food service to only hot meals in designated locations. Such laws have the effect of making it harder to be homeless rather than helping to solve the problem. 
Limiting food sharing, especially when coupled with an anti-vagrancy measure, often ends up penalizing the homeless and those who help to seek them. Or, sorry, those who seek to help them. In Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 90-year-old nonprofit leader Arnold Abbott was repeatedly cited and arrested for providing meals to the homeless in violation of a local food-sharing ordinance. The ordinance required, among other things, that charitable groups only share food outdoors if they do so with the following requirements. 500 feet away from residencies, 500 feet away from other places sharing food, and with written consent from the property owner, and with someone present who has food service manager certification from the state. Cities can revisit their food safety laws to make sure that they advance safety rather than penalize those who are homeless. Third are school disciplinary laws and procedures. Now, school policies are not technically laws, but we're going to include them here, and that's because we have to acknowledge the powerful impact they can have on local and mainly colored communities. All communities want their children to have a safe and supportive learning environment, but certain punitive school discipline policies can actually harm the students they should be protecting. Common examples are zero-tolerance policies that give the school officials no flexibility in discipline, as well as exclusionary policies like suspension and expulsion to punish minor or, you know, vague infractions. The problem with many of these policies is that they can be inconsistently applied or poorly defined. For example, policies that penalize insubordination or willful defiance. Well, there's no specific definition for insubordination or willful defiance. Maybe someone has had a bad day and they didn't mean to, but they said something snap in, in you know, a rude way to an administrator. And their, and their administrator is allowed to say, well, that was, you know, insubordination or willful defiance. Get out of my school. You know, it's so subjective that it, you know, it punishes people who don't need to be punished. Bills and acts like these end up affecting mainly urban and colored communities. And the fact that they still exist allow for unnecessarily high crime rates for the BIPOC community. This in turn leads to higher imprisonment rates and higher unemployment. Things like the filibuster in the Senate and unfair and unnecessary laws and localities make our democracy less free. They often limit our freedoms and the freedom of certain racial groups. Because of these things, we the people have to speak up. We have to participate in the democratic pro- in the democratic process and make sure that our voices, you know, get out there. Make sure that our Congress people or state house people or state Senate people or even local legislatures know that we do not approve of these, you know, certain laws that make it okay for certain things to happen. We cannot be silent about the fact that our democracy is being robbed blind of its honesty in service to the people. We need to recognize that the only way to stop it is for us to speak up. We have a responsibility to safeguard our democracy and the very forces of power and organization that keeps us free and able to live peacefully. So spread information and make sure your friends and family and anyone you know educates themselves. It might just save us all. Thank you.